Say, this is the Superhero Dad Podcast. This is the Superhero Dad Podcast. The Superhero Dad Podcast. There you go, buddy. Good job. So, Mark, we got a chance to talk to John Tyson, who is the author of Intentional Father. He's a pastor in New York, and he has basically done what has not been done before. You know, other cultures have always had this plan for taking boys into manhood. And when you look at the culture that we're in, there isn't really a roadmap. We kind of just let boys hang out with boys, and they just continue to do that all the way into the adulthood. And it's like, where are the men in this world? And so I think this is perfect for this moment that we live in to bring John on and talk about it. And I can't wait to have this conversation. Yeah, I know. Come on, Dave. I mean, it, it talks in it. And gosh, man, it's so convicting too, because he talks in this book and you know, we talked with him about it in our conversation of, if you don't intentionally become a man, if you don't intentionally raise your, your boys to be men, they're just going to be older kids and they're going to act like kids. Hey, who wants older kids? We got enough of those running around the world today. We need some actual men that were raised by older men to kind of show them how to become that. And I can't wait, dude, it's gonna be awesome. Yep, and uh, all right, well, enough of us talking. John Tyson, the author of The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raising Sons of Courage and Character. Let's get this conversation started. Oh uh, man, John, thanks so much for for coming on. Um, you know, I know uh, you got to talk with Dan, my wife, Danielle, with the Increased Women Conference uh, a few months ago. And I mean, I got to tell you, so I list, I was watching and listening in and we've talked to a bunch of the girls. D Dave's wife um, was you know listening in as well, Melody. They freaking loved you. And there's no one, no wonder. I mean, you gave some such golden, golden nuggets. And uh, so we're like, all right, the dads need it too. We need, we need some of John's, uh, John's work too. And, um, and you guys are former pro athletes. Is that correct? Yes, very former. What did you do? So Dave and I both played football. Um, Dave uh, played uh, quarterback. So he played quarterback, was uh, the first overall pick in the, I'm going to date myself, 2001. Yeah, that, that just means I'm really old. That, that's all that means. Which team was that for? For the Houston Texans, which was an expansion team. So they were brand new. So they were used to be, they used to be the Houston Oilers. Also played for the New York Giants, so I was in—I was actually in your neck of the woods for five years, and that's where I played with Mark, actually. And it's funny, so we—you know—first of all, this book is fantastic. Intentional Father is—I mean, it is—it's uh, great, and you go through the exercises, and you just feel like, oh my gosh, I need to work on myself, and then <laughs> then I need to be a better parent. But you talk about—I think you talk about one of the Super Bowls, um, you know, while you're in New York, and you know, with your son, that, that might have been one of the ones that Dave and I. Uh, we're in. So I, I saw that and I was like, oh, interesting. That's pretty, pretty neat. I remember so clearly that's when the Giants turned around and won it. I had just preached my brains out. I think I'd done four services and I was at a gay bar in Chelsea watching that game. <laughs> it was the only place after church I could get to to watch it. And I just remember thinking, hey, we might have something right here. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, that was a sweet win. So you guys got a ring out of that? Yeah, we got a ring out of that. Well, you know what? Congratulations, because it's like you, you can do 15 years in the NFL and come away with like a sore body and some money in the bank, but no ring. Right. That's pretty much it, yeah. Yep. And no ring. That's right. 
I got lucky too. That was my rookie year. So I was a young buck at that time. So I was like, Oh dang. So, nice. So I was like, okay, like this is just how it works. We, you know, it was all downhill after that for Mark, unfortunately. Yes. What else is there? You get out there, <laughs> you win, you got some tough games, you get a parade down Manhattan and a ring like that works. But, uh, but you, so first of all, you know, I, I don't know how much you, you know, or, or, or what uh, kind of you were told about what this is, but this is a podcast. This is for men. Um, it's called the superhero dad podcast. So, the idea of we as men, a lot of times we just naturally, we like to put our capes on, go out, conquer the world. And whether it's through our careers, whether it's through our friendships, whether it's through our sports. And sometimes we take that cape back off when we enter our house. And this is, we want to inspire men to put that cape on when they walk back in their house, because that's where it really counts to be a superhero. And that's what God's calling on our life is to to raise our, our children in a way that um, they can follow him. So thank you so much for, for coming on. And with your new book, The Intentional Father, I mean, I was like chomping at the bit, just getting ready. Ever since you announced that you were writing it and you're getting ready to uh, release it, uh, we got it a week ago, a week and a half ago. Have not done all the exercises yet, which we will. Man, those took me six years to go through, man. I so was about to say, there's no- Banging it out in a week is heroic. Yeah, but um, first of all, I would love to just say what ins what inspired you to to sit down and write this now because obviously you'd been going through it with your son for a long time, but you decided look I don't need to keep this in any longer. You have courses online, but I need to share this in a book version for everybody. Well, you know, I just felt like the need was so great. I mean, like if this book existed, I wouldn't have written it. I would have just used it. I wasn't looking in the midst of all of my pastoral respons responsibilities in New York to write a book on the side, you know? And I honestly was like sort of towards the end of the journey with my son, my son's 21 now, you know? So it was one of those moments sort of like prompting of the Holy Spirit, a ton of need. I had done the Primal Path course, but I felt like I needed something at like a, you know, $12 price point that the typical dad would pick up and have a go at. And I wanted to hit that sweet spot between like, challenge and empowerment, you know? And so if you, you get that tension point, that's where all the growth is. Yeah, so I felt like, um, you know, th there was there was a need for it, but there was a need in our society. I mean, how was the typical person formed? What does the typical great dad look to or use? And my experience has been a lot of dads want to get it right. They get one or two big moments right because they know they should. Like they do a camping trip, they have the sex talk, they do like a fun fun event, maybe they get a car. A lot of stuff happens in the day-to-day -day process of life that is just not looked at or even considered. So I felt like I wanted to put something in there that sort of like normalized a pathway for men from adolescence into manhood from a Christian perspective. Overwhelming need. Yeah, overwhelming need. I love that. And was, I, there's a quote in your book, I'm not sure if it was by you or someone else that you had cited, but it says they're formed by little scraps of wisdom. I dug, I dig that. And it's like every day, you know, and there's not really a handbook. And so I was, I was so glad, we, me and Mark were talking about this before you even came on, that this book now exists because there really hasn't been a, a manual for this. And you look at like, and you, you talk about it in your book also, looking back through the course of history, no other society are boys just allowed to hang out with boys and just do boy things all the time. I tell my kids this all the time. I look at them like, you guys don't need to be hanging out with each other. And I didn't know that there was like, I'm like, well, how do I... How do I point to something and say that what I'm feeling about you guys spending so much time together and not spending time with other men and, and people that are older than you with more wisdom? How do I how do I structure that? And that's why this book is so awesome for me is because I feel like I actually have that handbook now 
to kind of walk them through that. But just as you talked about our, our culture, I'm curious, just your definition of what the end goal is. Like, what's your definition of biblical or even masculinity? Like, what are we trying to turn our men or our young boys into? Yes. Well, I want to, I want to acknowledge that male strength is a gift. That's a controvert. That is sadly a controversial statement. Male strength is a gift. I mean, but maybe what I'm talking about, we have these little moments when we know it, like we just celebrated 9-11 here in New York. It would mean a lot to you, you guys both having been in New York. What, what you saw was brave men using their gifts and energy for the sake of others sacrificially, running into buildings, rescuing lives, clearing the rubble, pulling people out. And, you know, we, we had a moment where uh, America paused, games were stopped, and the heroes became policemen and firemen. And it was like we just, we just had like this orientation. It's like, oh, that's right. Strength used sacrificially for the good of others. Yeah, that's a good thing in our society. And yet we've missed that. We've just gone on and we've moved on. So my ultimate goal, I think, is to produce sort of like a Christ-like vision of strength. I'm like the total opposite of you guys. I was primarily formed as a young man in a meat factory. So I dropped out of high school at 16 in one of Australia's like um, less desirable neighborhoods. I did an apprenticeship as a butcher. It was straight up like old school thugs punching cows like Rocky. I mean, every stereotype, it was, it was all of that stuff. So I grew up around um, basically like bad male energy and strength, abusive, excessive, so in uh, Proverbs 31, I, I have this in the chapter, one of the chapters. I think it's so important. It says, do not give your strength to women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. And so this is before you get to the Proverbs 31 ministries. There's a thousand Proverbs 31 ministries. Where's the Proverbs 31 ministry? For men, because it says this king was being corrupted. And it's, it's actually a warning against Solomon who had tremendous capacity. He had riches, he had finance, and yet he got... So he got seduced by these women's gods at the end of his life and he built shrines of vanity to gods that weren't real. And if a man's strength and vision isn't formed properly, he will go and use all of his energy and just build monuments that don't matter. And he says, well, what's your strength for? And he says, like, speak up for the oppressed, judge correctly. So, yeah, my goal is to produce sort of like strength like Christ that produces sort of a nobility and confidence, but it's for the sake of others, not for the sake of the ego. And we know it when we see it. We're like, that is greatness. That is biblical greatness. So, yeah, I'm trying to sort of reclaim like, yeah, not, not toxic masculinity, but like a beautiful, compelling vision of male strength under control for the sake yeah. of others. So you talk about vision and like the, the part that I loved in your book is when you, you say, set a vision of the day that your son leaves the house and then work backwards from that point. And that was so, so perfect for me is like, that's what you always try to do in, in life and sports and in the kind of the world that we live in is you set a goal and then you kind of look what you have to do to achieve that goal. And you don't really do that with your kids. You kind of just, you know, a lot of guys probably just handle them day to day and as the situation arises. But yeah, to have a vision for that future is really cool. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, that's definitely, that's like reactive versus intentional parenting. You can be a, a good dad and react. You can react well, but you probably won't be a great dad. You know, so you've got to have a vision that consists of two parts. Number one, what is sort of like the, the great tradition of male wisdom that all young men secretly ache to find and master, but then specific things for your kids. Who has God given you? And like what are, you know, for my son, what are his strengths and weaknesses? What 
you know, who's God made him to be and how do I release him into his destiny, not just project my stuff into him. So the combination of two, those two things, yeah, and you just reverse engineer it, you know, like you just start here and you say, so when my son was 13, I was like, here's what I want him to know. Here's who I want him to be. Here's the stuff I want him to be able to do. And then how do I design like a journey primarily through experiences and theology that helps makes these things happen. And then, you know, I'd literally just got a, like a calendar out and just worked back over a few years. And even if I sort of lost my way, I sort of put it like this, I know what season I'm in. I'm in a season of helping him right now figure out how to handle women. Like, like what does it mean to be godly and have integrity with your sexuality, with, with, with erotic energy in a pornified culture? Like what is that? So even if I didn't like have like some huge blueprint, I was like I had a few things in that season I knew I wanted to do. It just gave me like an overarching guide. So, yeah, again, you know, people do it for sports teams in high school. Hey, guys, here's how we make it to state. Here's how we do it with academics. Here's the day you get the SAT scores back. The only error we don't do it for our sons is like, I don't know, their whole lives. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, I think the sad part is, we try to figure it out as we're going. And, and you know, I don't know about you, for you guys, but you don't really start to think about it until you either getting ready to have a kid or you are having a kid. And then you start to realize, wait a second, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And even if it was done right to me, even if my father was there and a good father and an intentional father, maybe he didn't leave me a blueprint on how to execute. And I think that, that that's a, a, the whole idea of starting to understand, okay, I am who I am, not necessarily because just happenstance has occurred in my life. God has made me uh, in a certain way and given me certain gifts. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, whenever I talk to, to young people or in young men, you mentioned the the um, you know, personality tests, the um, you know the Myers Briggs, the, the Enneagrams, things like that, to really understand who these young men are and and what they are. And I I encourage fathers to do it as well because unless you understand yourself, it's very difficult to let anyone else or guide anyone else to understand themselves. H how do you? I guess how do you like? You talked about bringing out what God has given to your son. This world wants to tell everybody that you can be whoever you want. Whatever you feel, you can do, you can be. And that's not on the same wavelength with, let's bring out the gifts that God has given you. Talk about that a little bit, please. So 25% of the book almost is like designed to help dads come to terms with their own stories. You know, most men walk around with like low-grade angst, like a deep sense of sadness. They don't know how to name the stuff that they're feeling in their interior life. It's not valued. It's not explored. Um, you know, sort of like you're drowning in responsibilities and duties. So it's just like suck it up and get through it. So I try to like create some space to say, hey, look, you know, there's, there's a Rodelheiser quote, quote, whatever pain is not transformed is transmitted. Our stuff will just leak out. You know, it will leak down unintentionally, particularly under stress. Your, default, your defaults come out. And that's often when we're like, I don't want to be like this. Why am I like this? Because we haven't processed it. So, yeah, the first part is like understanding your own story, understanding your own wounds, understanding like the gifts that you carry, coming to peace with it 
And so like the phrase I think I use is like, how do you damn the brokenness and release the blessings? Like how do you stop up stuff so it doesn't flow from one generation into the next? And then how do you find the good stuff that you want to pay it forward and, and, and pass that on? So yeah, there's a, hot, there's a, a time of self-processing and self-reflection. When I was going through this, man, I just had the fear of God in my heart. I was like, I am going to screw this kid up if I do not resolve. Like so coming down our family lines, we had, um, you know, uh, people, uh, incarceration for murder, incarceration for statutory rape, um, suicide, depression, drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, divorce, heartache. I mean, just like this stuff is like hanging over our heads. And if we don't, the stakes are so high. We don't even know how we've been formed just by being in these environments. It's like kids, it's like secondhand smoking, secondhand suffering, secondhand dysfunction. Even if you're just in the room, you get it. So we had to stop all of that stuff, have a bit of a come to Jesus moment and then like consciously work that out and then sort of figure out how do I move it forward? Because what you're getting at is like, how do you find out who your kid is? It's like so much of what we're doing is we're projecting our brokenness onto our kid or as a lot of um, you know psychologists point out, you make the brokenness of your parents the baseline for your behavior. So when you say, I'm not going to be like you still have the wrong reference point. Instead of saying, what does my kid need? You're now just projecting the things that you didn't want instead of asking, what does he need? So to me, it's like coming to terms with your own story, having a deep sense of awareness of that, and then figuring out who has God given me and then matching the best of what you have with the needs of that particular kid's heart. Going through all of those tests is fun. I can tell you, young people love finding out about themselves. They love it. There was no, we'd sit down and we'd talk about the Enneagram Myers breathe. We talk about this stuff for hours, and then I would tell stories to my, you know, particularly to my son of what he was like when he was little. How I knew, you know, like little signs of this. So sort of almost re-narrating his story back to him about his life. So I think that's a huge part of it. And when you've been on the receiving end of somebody who process who has processed their pain and seeks to love you for who you are, there is the most profound sense of being understood. And I think there is so much male pain that is fundamentally no one understands me. Like I just, no one understands me. The great angst of my whole life has been no one really gets me. I know my wife loves me. I know the people in the church appreciate me, but I don't think anyone understands me. And then when you get those people who do, it's amazing. I feel like a bobblehead right now. I'm just nodding along to everything you're saying. Uh, It's so good. And I think, gosh, you know, as as you just were talking there, it just, it struck me that I feel like there's probably some people that are going to be going through these types of things, kind of thinking back to their own childhood, to their own journey. And they feel like, man, I don't, I can't remember anything. And, you know, I've, I've listened, you know, to some of your sermons, read, you know, some of your books and sometimes, you know, those blocks are created out of necessity. Um, and sometimes, you have to dig a little bit into kind of who you are as a child as you were going back through you know, your process of understanding your own childhood. Did you have that at all? Did you have to talk to anyone, reference anything uh, in order to kind of get back into that mode? Well, you know what? I, I did something. I mean, look, mate, I'm a pastor. My primary work is dealing with people's interior lives. You know, I'm, I'm not a moralist. I'm not here to tweak their behavior and do sin management. The goal is to help them out of their inner being, being transformed to the image of Jesus and then have the life-giving flow of the Spirit change their lives, okay? So 
I do stuff that like a lot of people wouldn't do regularly in their everyday life. So like, here's what I did. I did something I called an emotional map. And here's what it is. Every time I flew and traveled, instead of watching TV or just, you know, watching a movie or whatever, I went by my life consciously year by year, asking the Holy Spirit to show me memories that made me. So instead of like, so again, I've had some hugely dramatic and traumatic things happen to me. But some of it like just bounced off me for whatever reason. But some of the tiniest things, featherweight things, scarred me deeply. Offhanded phrases, places I visited. You know, so like when you go back through your story and you don't ask like what big dramatic events happened, almost like, it's not an action movie. You're not looking for action sequences. You're looking for like meaning and that's like a different kind of film. It's more like a documentary. It's like like what stuff really shaped me here. So I went through my life like year by year and I just wrote this stuff down. So I've got like season by season, play by play of what stuff happened. And then I would always, always think when I was hanging out with my son, I'd go back and I'd say, okay, he's 14. What was I feeling at 14? What was happening in my body? How was I thinking about girls? Where did I, you know, like how did I feel about older guys like pushing me? How did I, and I just, and I try to enter into that psychological space so I could be very empathetic. I didn't want to lecture. I didn't want to prescribe. I wanted to sort of enter into his experience so that I could really help him. And there were some moments where my, my son would come to me and he'd say, dad, I'm bringing this to you because I don't know what to do and I know you've been here. What did you do when you were my age? And man, I was loaded up with like, man, let me tell you a story. I dated this girl and I had to fight a guy and I know that feeling of like feeling like honor's at stake. You know, like, like I, had, I had like my own traditions. I wasn't borrowing. I had like done that hard work. So to me, yeah, you could do a little bit every day. You could take 10 minutes a day, you could do like an hour a week on a Sunday night, just sort of sit back and just ask like, what's, what am I still carrying? And, and honestly, just by going back, I'm a pretty nostalgic person. Part of it's because I, I grew up in Australia and moved to America. So I feel like I have two distinct lives. I've got a lot of like photos, video footage, like you go through that stuff and then I think God will bring it up. So yeah, I mean, just like, here's the thing. It's awareness. Don't sleepwalk through your story. Be aware, be present to the stuff that shaped you. So speaking of being present, I, I, as I was going through your book, I was thinking of <clears throat> times where maybe I had started a process like this, but didn't really know what I was doing with my kids. So I think about, we were at the beach, we were in San Diego at one point and my kids were young, they were little. I, my boys are now older, my oldest one's 21. I have an 18 year old and a 16 year old. And at the time they were probably, I don't know, around 12, 10 and you know, say eight. And we were at the beach and I was like, you know what, you guys, you guys need to grow up. And I'm like, I'm just being the typical dad, just like grow up, get bigger, be a man, you know, that no real reasoning for what I was saying. And I was like, you know, we're just going to sprint into the ocean. We're going to run as freezing. Cause it was in the middle. I mean, we shouldn't have been there. It was the middle of winter, but I'm like, we're just going to run as far as we can. And the first one to fall, and we'll just laugh at you. We'll pick you up, but we'll see how far we can get in the ocean. So we took off and like, they still talk about it to this day. It was 10 years ago. And that was like one of the defining moments of their life. They felt like dad's going to let me run into the ocean. And I remember my youngest one, it was probably like eight. It was Cooper. He like, right before we took off, he like looks back at his mom and he's like, can I do this? And she was just like, yeah, go. And then he was like totally fired up to go because mom said it was okay. And so what I loved about your book, as you started the initiation process with your son, your wife was like, she, she kickstarted the thing. 
You know, and I think about it like football wise, this just happened to us last Friday, actually. A kid got hurt on the field and here come, and I'm standing there with my brother who I coach with. I'm standing there, I'm like, mom's gonna show up. I have a feeling like this is a, this is a mom's gonna come running out of the stands moment. And here she comes sprinting down the field. And I'm like, oh no. And you could just see the son, like he saw his mom coming and he instantly just jumped up. Like he had a injured shoulder and he just pops up and he's like, nope, I'm good. And <laughs> mom hits the brakes and like we caught her and we're like, he's gonna be fine. But it was like, that's what I loved about your book is you were very intentional about involving your wife in that. So just talk a little bit about that and how important that job is. Yeah, so the, the book actually has a softened version. In the, in the course, it's called a severing dinner. In the book, it was reframed as a directional dinner because the editors felt like it was too harsh and would alienate mothers. It's much easier to go to your wife and say, look, this is not severing dinner, but like read this book and we'll take the course later. Three things about that. Number one, um, they did research uh, at New York University uh, trying to figure out when did helicopter parenting begin and what was the sociological impact. So they pinpointed the year 1990 as the beginning of helicopter parenting where mums raised babies differently. There's a whole series of factors as to why it is. That's not the big point. The point is this. Within one generation, there was an 80% increase in anxiety and depression as a result of helicopter parenting. So young people just didn't know how to handle reality because mum was always hovering over them, doing it for them. And so like even our best instincts to overparent actually damage our kids in their formation. So like the sociological research that says like the effects of this are not healthy. Secondly, one of the things that's, that's very, very interesting um, James Hollis, who's like a Jungian psychologist, um, he's basically like a halftime specialist. And he says that there's six movements that have always existed in societies to initiate young men. Number one is the forceful removal of the child from the company of women. Often against they, with their will, a bunch of men come, just like roll up, kidnap the kid. Then they would do like a death of childhood, including sometimes burying them in the grave in a symbolic, like almost like we baptize people. They would do these things to say, hey, that way of life is over. Then they were given three things they had to learn, which was the religion of the community, the story of the community and their obligations to the community through role mastery. Then they were sent on what they called their great ordeal, which means they had to like you know, the Messiah was to kill a lion, you know, I mean, like pretty serious stuff. Do I have it within me? The vision quest. In Australia, the Aboriginal young men were sent out for six months into the wilderness on their own to survive. Like you've done six month little solo tour. You can handle anything. When you came back, you were recognized by the community of men and then you were reintegrated into society. But it all was kicked off by saying something's going to change now. So there's, so number one, the psychological research. Number two, there's a historical process. But number three, I asked my son when we we're doing the Camino, hey, Nate, I was like, I'm getting a bit of pushback on the term severing dinner. Should I soften it or not? And he just came alive. He's 19 at this point. He just comes alive and he said, dad, that was the most important and most helpful thing for me. He's like, I love mum. I have a great relationship with mum. I know she's cheering me on, but that triggered something in my head about the journey I was entering into. And he's like, what? He said, I urge you, whatever you do, do not take that out. So that was like my son's process, you know? So I obviously believe that mums play an important role. Of course they do. 
that I'm, there's something underdeveloped in the community of men that is missing. And so as a result, self-initiation is, you know, it's, it's killing young men. It's because they play such an important role that that seems so necessary. And we see it all the time, honestly, in, in the professional athlete world of there's a lot of guys who didn't, maybe didn't have fathers uh, in their lives, or maybe their moms were so big apart that they have so much trouble with, you know, the idea of leaving your family, leaving and cleaving. And, and when you get into a marriage relationship, the mom is still so heavily involved that it really puts a lot of stress on, on, you know, what should be the most important relationship at the time in, in your marriage. I think that's so huge for guys to hear too, of that it's look, just because you are having this severance moment doesn't mean that you don't love mom. And I think it's so important too for the moms, it, it, it kind of, you talked about it, like you got to go to them with the understanding that this is what's going to be best for your son and they will still love you, right? Like, it's not like you don't see mom or love mom. It's just, it's a, it's a reintegration to this process of, look, you have a journey, a purpose in this life. And part of that purpose is learning how to be a man. What a mom ultimately wants is for her, her, her baby boy to return as a man. Otherwise, there will be an, an, an unhealthy Oedipus sort of complex thing that can be very dysfunctional. We have a crisis of it. I mean, professional sports, I mean, I always think like the first thing I hear so many people do when they get money is like, I'm buying mama a house. You know what I mean? Like straight up, it's like, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, honor, we honor our father and our mother, but there's something sacred about the community of men giving you a place to to belong and bringing you along there's some deep ache of the male soul that needs that and will will be will lack formation if he doesn't get it and again an overparenting mom will will actually do damage even a desire to do good yeah i think that it's just the strains of relationship like you mentioned between the child and the mom because as and i've seen in my my own life and in, in certain family members and people that i know is their mom never really lets that transition happen to manhood. And then the, the son doesn't want anything to do with mom later. It's just kind of a weird dynamics because he's like, she just never let me grow up. She never let me become my own man. And like Mark was saying, like we've had teammates where the mom is so involved in the, you know, husband wife relationship that the son and the mom have this just weird dynamic in the wife that she's, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know her role. So it just messes with the whole family dynamic. The other thing that I liked, I mean, there's a ton of stuff in your book I like, but the the idea of are there things that you can do that you do as a dad that a lot of times you're like, I can do this myself, but you could also include your son. You can include him in that. And maybe it takes a little bit longer, but there was a story you wrote, you, you wrote in the book about uh, a farmer and he was putting a fence up and someone came along and he's like, you'd go, you know, it, it, it'd go a lot faster if, uh, all right, you'd be able to do it right. Or I can remember how the story went but he wanted to include his sons and he was including his sons, not because they would help him do it better because it clearly was taking him longer to do it with them, to teach them, but he was just teaching him. He was raising his boys. And so talk about that a little bit about sometimes we, as dads, we feel like we can do everything. We'll, we'll fix it. Like I'll come to a situation sometimes in my house and stuff's going crazy and nothing's getting done. And I'll yell at my kids for not having the room clean or not having the house the way it should be. So I just do it myself. And they kind of like, Oh, that works. All we got to do is not do it. And dad will do it. <laughs> Right, so smart, but yeah, just talk about that a little bit. What a what a great system for a teenager. <laughs> yeah, I mean the punt the punts on that story. There's a, there's a farmer. He's got two young sons, 
And the guy comes along and he says, man, you know, what are you trying to do? If you, if you do it with your kids helping you, it's going to take forever. And he says, oh, you're making a mistake. You think I'm fixing a, fact, a fence. I'm not fixing a fence. I'm raising sons. And the idea is like what we're going to do, what all of us will do as fathers is give everything we have accumulated to our sons at one point. And they will squander it or they will steward it based on how we teach them. So, yeah, is it quicker to fix your house yourself? Of course it is, man. But it's not going to be your house at one point. And so part of it is to help you say, hey, you know, like I say to my, my son, we have a, like a house out in the country in Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, it's nothing glamorous, but it's like if you live in New York, it's staggering. You know, to go from like Manhattan to the woods is beautiful. So I said to my son, whenever he would like not take care of something, I'd be like, hey, man, this is your house, not mine. I'm just looking after it till you get a little bit older and you're ready to own it. So, you know, like if you want to treat your house like that, that's okay. But if you want to learn how to care for your house, I can show you. And, um, you know, so it's, it's transferring ownership. It's equipping and empowering them to do that. And that's a huge part of a father's job. I mean, I, I think I tell a story in there. Maybe it's about the power of moments, but it's the same principle. Like if you don't teach your kids how to do these things, if you don't bring them along, you know, you, did you see that YouTube uh, channel with a dad who shows all the household skills? Yeah. It went viral. That made yeah. me want to weep because mm. every time he did that, that was a dad who never showed his kids how. Yeah. And so everyone was celebrating and I love the, the gap he was filling, but it was so sad that that had to happen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you basically want to bring your sons and bring them along. And if you study how the Greco-Romans did this, it was wild, man. Their, their process of like of transfer and, uh, you know, like the son inheriting uh, the legacy, the father was super intense. But the whole point was you wanted a competent son to steward the legacy. And so, so often we don't do that. And so what, you know what it is like one generation makes it, the next generation spends it, the third generation has got like nothing left. Right, right. Because we don't teach them how to do that stuff. So yeah, I, I believe in whole life equipping. Um, it is a little more challenging because everything's going so digital and tech is like so responsive, you know, and it's often cheaper. Like to, who's doing an oil change? My dad taught me to change the oil. Right. He's like, homeboy, if this thing breaks down on the side of the road, you need to get under the car. You need to solve it. And now I'm like, hey, Nate, just go get an oil change, bro. You know, I mean, it's right. like, so you have to like consciously figure out what the skills are needed for to thrive in today's world, which a lot of times it's like interpersonal and entrepreneurial. But you know, the principle holds. So yeah, I think we, we do a disservice when we just do everything ourselves. I think one of the things that, you know, is, is so transformative as well with, with this whole process of raising young men uh, is, is really, you know, we mentioned it before, but exploring your own childhood I would love to just get, you know, for, for our listeners, just like a little bit about, you know, your childhood, how you came up, because I think it's very interesting for them to hear. A lot of times I think, you know, you think of uh, maybe your pastor's got, you know, never experienced any hardship or, or maybe they experienced all hardship, right? It's, it's like always one or the other, but- It's a saint or it's Nikki Cruz. Exactly, you know I mean? exactly. Like and so, but, you know, that that's couldn't be farther from the truth for you know, pretty much everybody. So- a little bit about just kind of your origin story, how you came to be, who you are now, and at what point this was impressed upon you as, man, this is, if not the most important thing that you can do on this earth, uh, it's, it's right up there. I grew up in Australia. I was born in Melbourne, which has the best coffee in the world. 
great place, great place. Um, then I lived from two to ten in a place called Armadale in Perth, Western Australia, and then ten to twenty in Adelaide. Um, I became a Christian the weekend I turned seventeen. So I have I have wonderful parents, godly parents, um, but they were pretty passive, passive parents. Um, they both came from their own forms of like heartache, brokenness, neglect, and abuse. So they were like a thousand times better than what they were brought up with. Like again, I felt very misunderstood. So a lot of it was like prescribing general wisdom, not customized wisdom for who I was and what I was going through. When I was 14, I wanted to get a job because I wanted to get some money because I wanted to like basically go surfing and hang out with my friends. I got a job in a meat factory because I saw an ad in the local newspaper. So I showed up, tucked my shirt in, and I just like I was pretty a pretty witty kid. So I told my boss what I knew he wanted to hear, which was he said, why do you want the job? And I said, I'm sick of taking money from my parents. I want to learn responsibility. I want to be independent. I want my own source of money. And so he said, okay, you've got the job. And he dismissed all the other kids lining up for the job. So I start working there and it's a brutal environment. I mean like, you know what I mean? Like porn on the walls, um, just like bitter men with tired bodies. It was like wild. And so I'm like a 14-year-old kid and they're just giving it to me. I worked there for two years part-time after school and, and my boss was an extraordinary businessman. He was a real leader. He pulled me aside and he said to me, John, you are a leader. And no one had ever said that to me before. He said, you're a leader. I can see how people interact with you. He said, why don't you drop out of high school? I want to I teach you how to build a, build a living here. And he says, if you drop out of 16, he goes, if you drop out of high school, while well, all your friends are at school, paying off college, going to college, I'll teach you how to like retire by 30, buy a house at 18. Don't waste all your money on alcohol like all these other idiots. Like buy a house at 18, get a 10-year mortgage on it, just crank on the payment. Then get a second house, refinance it, get a second house, get a lake house. And, um, you know, don't get into debt, don't buy dumb cars. Like it just gave me this whole plan. So I bought a house when I was 19, which is as soon as I could get the payment together. And I just worked in this meat factory. So I had a visionary boss who gave me the gift of looking beyond the horizons of your own life. I worked with these guys where I was very grateful for the process of doing an, app, an actual apprenticeship, skill acquisition to I can't hold a knife without cutting myself to you can put any animal in front of me and give me an hour and I'll have you the best steak of your life for dinner. So it went from like... The, the amount of confidence that came from developing competent skills. So I went to sort of trade school, to butcher school or whatever. And in the middle of all of that, I became a Christian um, at a radical Pentecostal church. And it just changed my personality. So my whole vision shifted from retiring by 30 and building a meat empire to seeking first the kingdom of God. And it was very, very painful because I went from basically – enjoying working with godless butchers to being persecuted like a Christian. And I mean, they just got stuck into me for three years straight, every, like 10, 12 hours a day, super hard physical labor. And they're just trying to get under your skin to get a reaction because they remember what you were like before you were a Christian. Absolutely committed to drawing the flesh out of you. Yeah, daily. right. Sounds like my college buddies sometimes. Very painful, very hard tremendously forming like I'm a hard worker I'm driven I'm ambitious and a lot of it comes from my boss in the meat factory it's strangely translated very well in New York 
very, very different context, sort of like lower income, working class sort of background. But it's ended up well because those th- that's what a Wall Street person is, like scrappy, hustler, visionary, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I ended up um, getting a vision to come to the United States. I felt God call me to come to America in sort of like a Pentecostal vision sort of thingy when I was out praying in a, in a field one day. And then I got a scholarship when I was 20 to come to America and study theology and uh, met my wife there in the first two weeks, been married 23 years and been living in New York the last 16. And then I've done every job, man, in college, painting, moving furniture, back in the butcher shop, uh, working with the elderly, driving around people with immune system deficiencies. That I got a thousand funny stories of just like funding my life. There's a part of that story where I know there's people listening in America, in 2021 being like, wait a second, you decided to drop out of high school at 16 because the local local butcher shop guy said it was a good idea. What did that conversation go like with your parents? I mean, that's all I'm thinking about is there's guys right now, maybe some kids who think, man, that's actually, that's on my heart. I want to do that. Or maybe there's some parents whose kids have come to them like, man, like that, my son just said the same thing to me. And that sounds insane what was that conversation like with your parents? And, and I mean, how, what if your, if your son had come to you saying the same thing, what would your reaction be like? So three things. Number one, you know, with automation, with digitization, I don't know what jobs are going to look like in the future, man. But I tell you this, my plumber who just came and fixed my pipes charged me $325 an hour. That's lawyer money, mate. So he said to me, he said, you don't know how many like high-end professional places I've been in where they're like, I give them the bill and they're like, we make the same money. <laughs> so like there's so, like there's an amazing book called um, Shop Class of Soul Craft. I don't know if you've read that book, Essential Reading. It's basically on men gaining real world skills, skill acquisition as a vital part of manhood. Incredible book. So, so number one, if my son came to me and said, there's a thing I want to do like that, I'd probably like help him really explore. And and what young people need to hear is like, you know, 20 years from now when you're in your late 30s and your body is not as strong as it is and you're watching all your friends accelerate into their careers and you're showing up every day cutting up dead animals. Is this who you want to be? So like no one gave me that talk, okay? But I would like, I would paint a a future for him. Um, Secondly, my boss wasn't just a boss of a local butcher shop. He He was like a boss boss. And he owned, like he basically like vertically integrated the meat industry. He owned abattoirs, trucks, wholesalers, a series of stores. So his vision wasn't like, hey, work really hard as a butcher shop. He's like, I'll make you a manager at 20. And then, you know, it was basically like you can then do your second store at 22. So his whole vision was like basically build a meat empire. So I think my parents really understood. John's a pretty visionary sort of kid. He's been working for this guy and really thriving as a result of it. This guy in some sense is kind of like, hey, maybe I'll give this kid with this work ethic and vision the keys to my kingdom. So it wasn't just like drop out and do a job. It was like he's under a really gifted guy who's taken an interest in him. So I think that probably put their mind to ease a little bit. Still one of the great – I just asked my parents this. I I just said to them like, why didn't you talk me out of that? Or why didn't you make me finish high school? Like, And they were like, well, man, I mean, this is what my dad said. Well, son, you seem to be really good at it. So if you want to do it, do it. 
And my mum said, John, there's so much more to you than just chopping up dead animals. And that was it. That was the entire conversation. So then I. Well, that's what I love. Yeah. That's what I love about that is like, I think, you know, I, I have older children and all I want for them is to want something really bad is to just, is to just be so encouraged when they wake up every morning that they know what God's, what God's plan is for their life. They're going to go after it all the time. And, and that's, that's all I've been trying to do is try to see what that is. And you talk about that in your book is like, you know, our role as fathers is to help our kids discover what God wants for them, right? It's not to just be a professional athlete, which I could have easily just pushed my children. You're all going to be quarterbacks because they make great money. Well, none of them are quarterbacks. One of them is, but he's too small. He would get broken half. His mom would divorce me if I put him out there. So like, that's not going to be their life. So that's what I love. And I, I also love when you talk about the values in your book also and wisdom, self-control, courage, and justice. Because I talk about with my boys all the time. You know, we get this funny little saying, I'm like, you're either a predator or you're a protector. If you're a predator, we're going to have beef. If you're a protector, you have an ally in your dad. And we talk about that all the time. And I think that sometimes you're trying to raise these kids. You're like, okay, you get so focused on what you want them to do. You don't give them the set of values, which will basically kind of take them where God wants them to be anyway. So talk a little bit about the values section. Yeah. So again, those values sort of come out of Proverbs 31. It's like, that's, it's my, these are ancient Greek virtues. These are what they call the cardinal foundational virtues. And yes, yeah, so justice, wisdom, self, self-control and courage. And it's like, we all have values, conscious or unconscious. We're always modeling them again, particularly under stress. You're talking smack to everybody, but they see what it's like when you're running late and you've just had a fight with your wife. And, you know, they're just like, okay, I'll see what's really up here. So the question is, are we going to have like default values or are we, are we going to design them? You know, and so I, I, I try to help my son see, hey, everybody has values of some kind. I try and point out like, hey, what do you think that person values? What do you, what do you see that that family values? So I want him to like be awake and not asleep when he's creating his values. But then secondly, I just felt like there was so much controversy around the idea of manliness. You know, like what is a man? Like how is this not toxic? This just feels like, you know, these abusive like alpha male preachers or whatever. So I was like, how do I dig deep? into like the great tradition of humanity and build some foundational values. Like you, let's just walk through them real quick. Justice, wisdom, self-restraint and courage. Who doesn't want that in their kids? Like (laughs) argue with me. I want people who don't want injustice. I want fools. I want gluttons. You know, I want cowards. Nobody does. So I try to build that like base level value. And, And I think... When those values are tested, like when a man stands up for some, something rises within him, like you are saying, you're the protector, like something within him is like, yeah, I was born for this. When he sees a fool or he's been a fool and then he begins to get wisdom and he starts seeing like, you know, wise lives pay off and then it's internalized as that sense of joy. Who doesn't love that? You know, and when he's courageous instead of when he leans in, instead of lean back out of fear, you love that. And when he learns to discipline himself, not out of punishment, out of desire, you know, you got to think back to your journey the first time, like maybe your parents are pushing you to do football, you're doing it because your friends are. But then that moment when you say, I want to train on my own because I want to get good at that. Man, when that happens in a man's heart, that is the beginning of a legacy. That seed is the beginning of a legacy. So yeah, I wanted him to have those values. And then I wanted to design things that produce those in his life. So again, 
we, I think most dads are, in, are winging this and they're intuitively doing it. Like I know I should. And so they're pulling out bits here or they're highlighting things there. I love that. I applaud that. I think we can be a, a touch more intentional and it will, it will yield larger fruit. So I will often do things like with, with my kids. I'll sit down, you know, my daughter's 18, just dropped her at college, my son's 21. And I'll just say like, what, what, who am I? Like what, do you, what have you perceived about me over the years? And I'm basically asking informally, am I living up to my own values or not? And I think the greatest things my kids would say, Dad, one of the things we really appreciate you is that when you don't live up to this, you ask for forgiveness. That's so hard, right? Man, that's that's so hard. But it's so – my kids still talk about the times when I've done that. And they obviously know when I've screwed up. But, like, more impactful is when I've just brought the family together and be like, Dad messed up there. I, I apologize. You know, that's crazy. Crazy powerful. Yeah, that that's, that's incredible. And, you know, John, are we kind of getting close to the end of our time here, which – for me is just absolutely terrible because I could talk. I mean, we, I would just keep next time in New York. Let's go out. Let's go hang out. Hey, I'm, I'm in Connecticut. Don't, don't tempt me. I, I might take the train down and, and bombard you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hello. Uh, David might have tougher time coming from California. I, uh, it might be difficult. California is a little bit further, but it's okay. But, but one of the things that, um, we like to do is ask dads very intentionally. And this is the superhero dad podcast what would be your dad's superpower? Something that you either have developed or comes naturally that you just know, I can dominate this situation because it just make it, it, it is who I am. And, uh, you know, asking your kids, you might say something different, but just what do you feel like it would be your dad's superpower? Simplifying complexity. Awesome. See, that answer was simplified. You, simpli you simplified my complex question. <laughs> you even did it the answer. It's good. Yes. Yeah, man, look, don't be overwhelmed. Let's get to the absolute core root of this. Chop it into bits. You can figure this out. You know, in the same book, the same book that um, they talked about, uh, it's actually an M. Scott uh, Peck book, but it talked about the raising sons. You know, like I'm not fixing a fence, I'm raising sons. He said this, most of us are pretty smart and we can figure anything out if we think about it long enough, but we're just too busy. And so like you, you look at like putting together a cabinet and you're like, I don't know, you know, let me just pay the Ikea guy. I don't have time for this. It's like, and then you try to do it yourself. It's like, it's kind of hard. If you slow it down, you're like, it's not that complicated. It's a series of steps. And so like helping your kids do that. Hey, I'm overwhelmed. Like my daughter right now, she's starting to be a nurse and she's having a tough time with chemistry. And so her vision is like, I don't know if I can be a nurse because I can't pass chemistry. And I'm like, hey, hey, look, Haley, let me just talk you through this, okay? This is a four-year degree. This is one class. The only thing you have to do right now is pass this class. Don't worry about your nursing career. Get a tutor. Just get a C. Just get through this right. and trust me, the subjects you're good at will open up. So, yeah, it's like it's just taking all the drama and then getting it to the core doable thing and then empowering people to do it. I wish I could say it was throwing a football, but that's against the rules in Australian football. Right, yes. Got to pitch that bad boy back. Um, yeah, and uh, trust me, that being able to throw a football, while it never goes away, uh, it's not required. I, you watch me throw a football, it's not. It, we could do probably about the same, John. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, your ability that you just laid out there is obviously way more important than mine at this point because I, I don't think I've thrown a football in like a year or so because it hurts everything in my body. So it's, you can still do what you want to do, which is good. And, and, you know, lastly, as we close up, um, you know, love to take a, just a moment, uh, for you, whether you're, you know, your family listens or not, 
but just to have it out there, a, a moment for you to talk about each one of the, you know your wife and your children and just why you are proud to be their father and, and why you just were husband uh, and how, just how it makes you feel. Okay, yeah, I am married, been married 23 years to my college sweetheart. Her name's Christy. She's an alpha female apex predator survivor. I mean, look, man, she's just been through every form of abuse. She's overcome so much. She's just like a lioness, you know, and she's just so strong. She's an amazing like partner in church planning, which is often very, very hard. It's been very complex planning churches in Manhattan for 16 years. And she's like kept a sweet spirit underneath it all. You know, so like a lot of people can grit their teeth and get like an aggressive psychology to handle pain. She's done all of that with a sweet spirit. So you're like a very strong woman who's got like a sweet center. I'm really yeah. into that. My son, Nate, is 21, just fills me with joy. You know, um, there's, he's so similar to me. He's so different than me. He's got a rare heart for God. Um, he's very thoughtful, very sensitive. He's a processor. You know, so it's always great to talk with him. And, um, yeah, I'm like his, his life vision is to, like, start prayer rooms. You know, I'm like, come on, man. I mean, like I'm a pastor. That's, like, even better than being a pastor, you know. So, yeah, just super grateful for him. He's very honest. And he's very vulnerable with his parents. Often confesses his sins to me, asking for help to process. So just, like, you know, so grateful. My daughter is the joy in my heart. You know, she's 18, but she's, we still call her sweet baby Haley. She's a helper. You know, like look for the helpers. She's a helper, sacrificial kind, wise. Always got people around her asking for wisdom and insight. She's a sacrificial giver. And, uh, you know, whoever marries her is going to like have a tough time getting past me but an inherit an incredible wife. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, I've got extended family obviously but like that's a little Tyson unit and um, I just love them and I'm grateful. I mean, I, I, I can't believe I get to live the life I live with the people I live at. And it's mainly God's grace. It's just his kindness to me that I don't deserve. So That sums it all up right there. Get to live the life that you're living with the people that you're living it with. And that is God's grace. I mean, that you can see it on your life. Yeah. And I, I would just, I would just in this, I saw this on the, I think one of the last chapters in your book and I wrote it down, but in, I think the chapter 16 or 17 says, you don't raise heroes, you raise sons. And if you treat them like sons, they'll turn out to be heroes, even if it's just in your own eyes. And I can tell like, just when you talk about your son, like, and the journey that you guys have gone through, you have a, a deeper connection and a relationship than probably the majority of the, the known world. And so I would just encourage dads that are listening to this to get your book because it's changed my whole outlook on parenting. And I've been doing it for a long time. And I thought I was getting it kind of right. But to just have an actual roadmap is, is so crucial um, to be able to have that relationship that you have with your son and see the smile on your face when you talk about it. It's just priceless. So I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you coming on, John, and talking about that because it's going to be super helpful for people. No worries. And it's also great, great chatting to the other half of the women's podcast. So, so knowing that you guys are on the other side of that, that's like nice closure for me, you know? Yeah, no, it's good. So so you know that we are we are at least trying to be on the same page as our wives. A lot of times they're, they're maybe a step or two ahead of us, but we, we come along uh, with them. And so for anyone listening and this book we're referring to, it's called The Intentional Father, a practical guide to raise sons of courage and character, obviously by written by John Tyson, who we are uh, had the amazing pleasure of listening to today. Is there any any website or anywhere that, that people can go to find your other books? You have, you have a litany of other books that have been super helpful to me. 
Uh, just Amazon, man. I mean, I don't have like a, an author website or whatever. I'm too busy pastoring our church, you know. You can follow it like I'm on social media at John Tyson, J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N. If you want to see what it looks like to be a pastor in New York in the everyday and, you know, see me interact with my kids, I put them online a little bit as, as much as they're comfortable. So. God bless you, John. And thank you so much for taking time to uh, bless our listeners. Appreciate that, man. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks. See ya. No worries. Loved it. Great chat with you, fellas. See ya. Well, Mark, another great conversation, and hopefully it wasn't just encouraging to me and you, but it was encouraging to the listeners, and they were able to take just some nugget that helps them become better fathers. And really, when it comes down to it, you know, as we're surrounded with just being a superhero outside of the home, hopefully it encourages us as fathers to throw that cape on when we get out of our truck and into the garage and climb back into our house, because really that's when your job starts. As a, as a father and as a husband. So hopefully it encourages them and people around that are listening to check out some more of this information and some more conversations that we've had. So where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. On Instagram, it's at the superhero dads, at the superhero dads. And then also on Twitter at, at superhero underscore dads. Check out our Love YouTube it. page, check out our social media handles. On our social media handles, we'll have links to all the books referenced in this podcast, all the videos referenced in this podcast, and ways to reach out to someone if you really enjoyed their conversation and what they had to say. So thank you guys so much. This is the Superhero Dad Podcast. <laughs>